welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm pleased to welcome James Holland, the historian whose new book, Brothers in Arms, One Legendary Tank Regiment's Bloody War from D-Day to V-E Day, well, does more or less exactly what the subtitle says. It's the story of the Sherwood <laughs> Rangers from the time when they first came ashore on the beach in D-Day to the end of the war. James, can I start? It was an enormously kind of full and detailed book. What was it that made you pick the Sherwood Rangers? Is there just more material available for them? Well, there was for me. And the reason is because I've had an association with that regiment, which sort of began very accidentally back in 2004, which was the first time I ever went to Normandy. And a friend of mine organised a trip for a whole load of us to go out for the 60th anniversary. And one of the people that was among the party was a chap called David Christopherson, who I hadn't actually met before, but we very quickly became firm friends. And his father had been the officer commanding of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry for much of the last 11 months of the war. He actually arrived on D-Day as commander of a squadron, the Sherwood Rangers, but within a matter of days, the Sherwood Rangers lost two of their CEOs. And so he stepped into the breach and it was a post he kept till the end of the war. It was the most amazing time because, you know, I was on Gold Beach on, on the anniversary with David and he was talking about his father landing. And, you know, this is all quite new stuff for me and at the time. And it was absolutely fascinating. And we were staying in a little place called Adroy, which is about, I don't know, about, about eight miles south of Bayeux. So maybe kind of 15 miles south of, of Gold Beach and the Normandy beaches. And he'd brought with him his father's journals and diaries and stuff from the war, which were very detailed and extensive. And he was talking about point 103. And, and David had his father's original one to 250,000 map that he'd been issued, which still had sort of pencil marks on it. And we looked at Odroy, where we were, and realised that point 103 was literally, you know, half a mile away from where we were standing. So David and I then wandered up there to look at this place, point 103, and find out what, what were, all the great fuss was about. And there was this sort of ridge, and it's not a particularly pronounced ridge, as, as the, the name of point 103 suggests. It's not, not terribly high, you know, it's 103 metres above sea level. But it's significant, like a lot of these ridges in, in Normandy, you know, he who has the high ground, well, it applies anywhere really, you know, has, has a huge advantage. And there was this beautiful tree line of sort of chest, you know, horse chestnuts and beaches and what have you, and a, and a sunken lane and the kind of raised kind of sort of bocage hedge line. And you could sort of half close your eyes and, and picture the Sherman tanks there and half tracks and trucks of the Sherwood Rangers all lined up as they kind of took this just a few days after, after D-Day. And it got me very captivated. And I think because my grandfather was at Passchendaele in the First World War and was then an auxiliary fireman in the Second World War. My other grandfather was also an auxiliary fireman. But I don't have any great sort of Second World War family heritage to draw on. And I think if you've got an interest in a subject, particularly like something like the Second World War, you need to have a favourite squadron or a favourite ship or a, or a kind of sort of, you know, a regiment to follow. And so I kind of chose the Sherwood Rangers. And at the time, I happened to be writing about the North Africa campaign. And David had mentioned that his father kept diaries throughout this whole period in the Middle East and North Africa. And I said, oh, you know, there's only chance I could have a look at them. And, you know, he sent them over to me. And, and I included Stanley Christopherson, his father, in my North Africa book. And then subsequently, for various reasons, there came an opportunity to edit the diaries and, and his journals. And we published that as an Englishman at war, I don't know, about 10 years ago, something like that, maybe maybe a bit less, eight years ago. And for that, David and I had gone around interviewing a number of the veterans who were still alive, one of which was John Semkin, who was just a remarkable man. Another one was David Render, there was Bert Jenkins and Sid Cox and various others. And so when it came to lockdown last year, and I was sort of thinking about what am I going to do for, for a next book, I was planning a big sort of campaign history. I suddenly realised I was in no way I was going to be able to do that because I just couldn't get to the archives. 
But the Sherwood Rangers Association up at Carlton Barracks in Nottingham, they were quite happy for me to come up in, in lockdown. And I realised that I had quite a lot of other material that people had sent me as a result of doing the Christopherson Diaries. And I had enough to do a kind of sort of Band of Brothers style book following one unit. And actually the whole idea came about from a conversation with John Orloff, who was one of the screenwriters of Band of Brothers. And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that could work. And so I did a little tweet out on Twitter saying, you know, I'm thinking about doing this book on following a British armoured unit from D-Day to V-Day. What does everyone think? And, and it was literally my most retweeted and liked tweet I think I've ever sent pretty much. And so that was it. And that's how it all came about. And I'm jolly glad I did it, to be honest. It's been fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, that fascination, because when you're writing military history, there's sort of two sides to it, it seems to me, as a, as a lay reader. You know, there's the human story of the people involved in the battle. And then there's all that stuff about, you know, enfilades and flanking manoeuvres and, and, and the sort of, <laughs> you know, the toy soldiers aspect of it. And what do you think is the appeal of that? And how do, how do you kind of balance it in a book like this? Well, I think that balance that you're talking about is the absolutely key to the very best of popular history about the Second World War or, frankly, any, any military campaign. It's that balance between authority and readability, isn't it? And I think, you know, if we're honest, all of us are kind of drawn to something as seismic and cataclysmic as the Second World War because of the human drama. I mean, you know, if you think about Britain's own experience, you can't beat it for human drama, really. And, you know, it's the one conflict that affected every man, woman and child of the nation in a way that no others, no other ever has, not even not even the Civil War of the 17th century, not even the First World War, I would say. So... You've got that human drama and that human experience. And I think that's certainly what drew me to it in the first place. But as you get sort of, you, you understand a bit more about the experience of it, you kind of want to go, okay, well, well why are they doing that? And, and why did that happen? And why are they in this tin can of a tank and sort of careering across the desert or whatever it might be, or, or in this Lancaster bomber going over Essen? And the whys and wherefores suddenly become a kind of adjunct to your initial interest in the human drama. And so I think you, you have to, contextualise it so that you can understand the empathy you're feeling towards the character that you're reading about. It's no good to just say, you know, he was in a tank and he was feeling a bit scared. You know, you've got to understand why that tank is that tank and why it's there and why this is particularly scary. I mean, obviously, any time you're in a tank being shot at, it's going to be scary. But why is it particularly so at this particular point? And I think all those those whys and wherefores and that contextualisation is is, is really interesting. And as I've got more and more into the subject of the Second World War, I've kind of realised, I think the narrative of the war has has become a little bit tired. It's become a little bit two-dimensional. I think there's a whole layer of warfare that people leave out, which is the operational level. So, you know, if you read most books on the Second World War, they tend to focus on the strategic level, i.e. the high command and why they're, you know, how they're going to get to Berlin or whatever. And the tactical level, which is the cold face of war, that sort of kinetic bit, the actual fighting, you know, the Japanese Spitfire, the crew and their bomber, a Japanese foxhole. But what, what hasn't really been included, and this applies to documentaries, it applies to most narrative histories as well, is there isn't that kind of, OK, but, but how does the strategic level kind of link up to the tactical level? How do you kind of, what is your way of war? What is your way of doing it? And, you know, the German approach to war is very, very different to the Soviet approach to war, very different to the British and, and so on. So there's different ways of doing it, which are dependent on your situation in the world and your geo-economic kind of makeup. And I think all of that is absolutely fascinating. And that's the operational level. It's, it's a kind of how you make it happen. 
I mean, that is sort of, to a large extent, kind of logistics and factories and economics and all the rest of it. And you think that might be a bit boring, but actually it isn't because it's chock full of human drama as all the other bits. And I think once you reinsert that operational level, you get a much broader, a much richer and more nuanced picture of the global conflict that is the Second World War. And that then, when you're going to a kind of a, a, just a tank unit, a single tank unit, you can contextualise their experiences so much more effectively. Well, that context, actually, I mean, it's very interesting to me in the early parts of the book how, you know, we're still in the relatively early days of tank warfare, aren't we? I mean, you yeah. say that, you know, they were on horses not very long ago. Yeah, exactly. No, I, find, I think it's incredible. And I, and I guess that's the other attraction about the Sherwood Rangers is in a way you can sort of use them as a leitmotif for the experience of the British Army in 1939 to 1945. You know, the Royal Navy in 1939 is absolutely second to none. You know, it's really, really good. It's the world's largest and there's no problems there whatsoever. You know, there's lots of very, very clever people. You know, the British Army is actually completely mechanised apart from those yeomanry units like the Sherwood Rangers which are still on horseback. But the army is a very, very small part of the British Armed Forces in 1939 when we go into war. You know, France is going to do the army bit and obviously that doesn't pan out exactly as planned in 1940. But, but you can see that the British Army starts the war kind of behind the game. You know, it hasn't got its best commanders in place. It hasn't worked out how to do things. It's small. It's kind of small-minded, I think, in a lot of ways. But by the end of the war, by 1945, it's really pretty good. You know, some very, very, very good units. It's got some very, very good equipment. It's got some very, very good commanders as well, whether that be in the Far East, whether that be, you know, in Italy, whether that be in Northwest Europe or elsewhere in the world. And I think the Sherwood Rangers kind of reflect that in a way. They go off to war on horseback and kind of involved in not the last, but one of the last sabres drawn cavalry charges against Arab insurrectionists in Palestine. Because don't forget, there's still kind of colonial policing to be done. And they end the war with the single unit with more battle honours than any other in the British Army. I mean, that's quite a feat. I mean, that's quite a turnaround. And they are, I think, sort of emblematic of that transition of the British Army. And you talk about them sort of, as it were, learning on the job. I mean, the, the, yeah. you know, they start out thinking, well, charging is the thing to do in these big metal objects. We've got. Yes. Actually, no, that's not such a good no. idea. Well, they've got the balaclava charge, I think they call it. And, and then yeah. they're starting to learn to work alongside the infantry. I didn't know that tanks worked that closely alongside infantry. So the way the British Army is organised is there's two ways that you use armour. So you would use them in an armoured division, which is not just stuff full of tanks. It is a combined arms mechanised unit, which does include a reasonable number of tanks. And that is a formation of exploitation. <laughs> so what I mean by that is everyone else does the kind of hard yards, the attritional bit, grinds a hole through the enemy line. And as the dam sort of, you know, crumbles... Through this, your armoured divisions flow and, and exploit into the kind of the expanse beyond. That's the idea. But to get to that point where the armoured divisions can do that exploitation, you have to kind of grind down the enemy. The way you do that is with armour and infantry going forward, supported by vast amounts of firepower. So artillery, and in the case by 1944, also close air support from the sky, and, and for much of the Normandy campaign, for example, from offshore naval guns as well. You know, you have these huge guns with shells that can sort of be fired 20 miles or whatever so so for a lot of that time they're, they're still in range but you still need that combination of infantry moving forward taking ground with the armor there to give them some firepower support right at the coal face so you've got your artillery behind lobbing shells and mortar units and all the rest of it but you need that combination of sort of defended machine guns 
and bigger guns, which you get in a tank, attacking foxholes and, you know, infantry and mortar, German mortar teams and all the rest of it. And also tanks, of course, and anti-tank guns and so on, as they move forward. And that's what the Sherwood Rangers are doing. And that armoured support is supplied in an independent armoured brigade. So not an armoured division, an independent armoured brigade. And an armoured brigade would have three of these armoured regiments, each of about 688 men, of which 327 were actually in tanks. And of those tanks, you'd have 61 tanks, main Sherman tanks, and then a further 11 lighter tanks. So 72 tanks in an armoured regiment, basically. And that's how it worked. The British way of war by 1944 is that you have this very, very sharp point of the spear and a very, very long shaft. It's what I call big war. So it's this idea that your logistical support, this huge infrastructure behind you, supports this very, very small number of troops that are actually in the, you know, having to do the hard yards. Which is why British Second Army in Normandy, for example, only 14% are infantry and only 8% are tanks. And of that tank regiment, only 48% are actually in the tanks. The rest are supporting our troops in that regiment, supporting the guys in the tanks, which is what I mean. So 43%, on the other hand, are, are service corps, are service troops. And that sort of tells you all you need to do. And, that, and actually, that's a very sensible way of going about things, because it means that the number of troops in the firing line is, is kept to an absolute minimum, which means you have less casualties. You know, great, that's fantastic. But if you're unfortunate enough to be in a tank or in the infantry, then your chance of getting through unscathed in those last 11 months are statistically absolutely zero. Well, you do say, I think it's about a quarter or a third of the way through, but you have a thing saying, right, they've been in country for a month and yeah. two fifths of the whole, you know, shebang have been either invalided out or killed. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that sort of attrition rate is extraordinary. And does that present you as a historian with some narrative difficulties? Because you've got, you know, you, you've got a cast of characters and quite a large <laughs> cast of characters. <laughs> yes. Well, I really wanted to stress that sense of the kind of revolving doors, that it's just a constant conveyor belt of personnel coming in. And inevitably, there are some constants. You know, the Padre, who's a remarkable guy, struck with Leslie Skinner. Stanley Christopherson, who I've mentioned before, you know, who ends up being the officer commanding for most of it. You know, he, he's there till the end. Unlike his two predecessors, you know, he comes through unscathed. There are people that do come on through unscathed. Stuart Hills, David Render... You know, there are people that are there for a long period of time. And there are others who kind of sort of, you know, get killed in their first action, inevitably. Wendy, you mentioned, is a very interesting character to me because he's... I mean, they're all incredibly young. And yeah, he really. is in command, aged, I think, 19 earlier. That's right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, comes through the war. He's sort of battle-hardened veteran of, what, 21 or something. Well, 20, yeah, by the end he's, of the war. He's only 20, is he, by the end of the war? God. Yeah. What was it like for them? What was the sort of culture... I was sort of interested in what the relationships between the men are, you know, obviously brothers in arms, but, you know, their youth, their extraordinary attrition rate, and the fact that as tankies, you know, presumably they've got a slightly different sense of themselves from the infantry. How, what were those relationships like? You know, if you come out as a, as a young troop commander, you, you're not given a troop straight away, you're given a crew straight away, and then you have to kind of sort of prove yourself and learn some of the ropes and all the rest of it. And then, you know, in a matter of a few days, you're given a troop, which meant you would have either three tanks under your command or, as it developed, tactics developed, four tanks under your command. And, you know, you just had to sink or swim. I mean, there was no way round it. I mean, you have to remember these guys are very, very well trained when they come out there, but they're not trained for what they're getting when they reach the front line. And you're suddenly having to take command of people, you know, there might be a troop sergeant, for example, might have kind of 
been one of the pre-war regulars from 1938 you know when they were a yeomanry regiment you know he might be a kind of you know, farrier from Retford or something you know he's been all the way through the North Africa game he's been there done it got the t-shirt and suddenly there's some 19 year old sprog turns up sort of trying to tell him what to do you know so it, it can be a sort of fraught relationship but you have to kind of you you know you have to stamp your leadership authority David Render struggled a little bit. He had some truculent people that he had to deal with, but he won them over because he stayed alive and he learned very quickly. You know, your learning curve is so steep in those circumstances. It's a lovely description of him pushing his tank a bit too far forward down a slope and hearing over the net some some other commander say, oh, I don't like the look of that. And the other one go, he'll learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you do learn and you survive or you don't and you and you come a cropper. So, yeah, and he does. But then there's, there's Stan Perry, for example, who obviously just had a natural flair for leadership, you know. So he got out there and immediately he got the measure of his men. You know, he's a working-class boy himself by background, or even though he was commissioned. He just sussed them out and, you know, they just respected him just like that. There was no question about it. I think, you know, you're throwing lots of people together. There's You have to trust one another. You know, a lot of the normal kind of formalities of perhaps infantry life are kind of put to one side when you're all in a tank crew. You know, it's all kind of first-name turns and... And all the rest of it, you know, you have to have those sort of barriers of command. But but it's about mutual trust. It's the same as a kind of, you know, a bomber crew. You know, you've all got to have complete trust in one another that you, you can do the job. And if you haven't, you've got to either get rid of that person or kind of get them to wise up very, very quickly. In terms of kind of relationship with the infantry, what you find with the showed Rangers is, is that they're constantly being outcommanded because they're an infantry brigade supporting a division. So a division is the next size up in terms of military formations from a brigade. So uh, an infantry division would be commanded by a major general, whereas an armoured brigade would be, understandably, commanded by a brigadier. And an armoured regiment would be commanded by a lieutenant colonel, whereas an infantry brigade would be commanded by a brigadier again. And so every single step of the way, what would typically happen is you would have one squadron would be supporting one battalion, one regiment would be supporting one infantry brigade, one arm, independent armoured brigade would be supporting one infantry division. So at every step of the way, the tank guys are being outranked by the infantry. Most of the time that doesn't matter, but it does if you're there to support an inexperienced infantry division. So, for example, in the middle of June, you know, suddenly they get given the 49th Bears Division. And the Bears Division just haven't been in action before. Whereas the Sherwood Rangers haven't been in Normandy before, before D-Day, obviously. But they have got lots and lots of experience. And they've got very clear ideas about how infantry armour cooperation works best. Whereas the Bears guys just are clueless because they haven't trained in this before. And the reason they haven't trained in it is not an oversight of training. It's because Britain's not a very large place. And there's a limit to how much training you can do of all arms training when you've got millions and millions of men of different units and different formations all getting ready for D-Day. So there's no alternative but learning on the job. But of course, learning on the hoof is an incredibly dangerous way of learning. It's sort of a bit like sort of getting into a car and, you know, just left your own devices until you kind of sort of work out how to, how to drive. I mean, you know, the chances are a lot of people are going to crash and kill themselves. Give us a sense of what it's like for these guys being inside the tanks. What are these things like? What's the atmosphere like in them? What are the, you know, what's the, what's the physical experience? Well, the physical experience is it's pretty brutal. The Sherman tank is a lot more comfortable than most. I mean, try getting in a T-34, for example, the Soviet one. It's actually tiny and just full of sort of health and safety executives nightmare. But Sherman tanks, they're very cramped necessarily. 
In the case of the Allies, you're going forward. So you're constantly going to go over sort of, you know, broken bridges and rivers and stuff because you're going forward and the enemy are retreating. As they're retreating, they're going to try and make life as difficult for those attacking them as possible. So never you're going to have to do lots of bridging. Well, the most common means of bridging is the Class 40 Bailey Bridge, which can take 40 tonnes. So there's no point having a tank that's bigger than 40 tonnes because it's not going to get across it. So Sherman tank is 30 tonnes, and even with additions of sort of stowage and logs and chickens and crew and, you know, all the other bits of detritus that you would have with you. It's still going to be well under 40 tonnes. But that means that, you know, your 40 tonnes, you've got to have armour because it's got to be protected. So the thickness of the sides and the frontage and all the rest of it and the turret have got to be a certain depth. That adds weight. The more you add weight with that, then the, the more you're restricting the overall size that something can be. And so it ends up being quite cramped, inevitably. So it's incredibly brutal. But I think the thing that one has to understand is, you know, in winter, they're short days. And so the days of combat are going to be quite short because of, of weather and all the rest of it. But it's freezing cold. You know, it's absolutely freezing and miserable and dark and, you know, all sorts of horrible privations. In summer, high summer of 1944, for example, you've got incredibly long days. So typically, if you're a troop commander or a squadron commander, you might sort of get up at 3.30 in the morning. You might be ready to go by. Then you've got to sort of net in your radio. You've got to oversee that. You've got to sort of check orders for the day. Then you've got to sort of, you know, be ready to leave at kind of 4.15, 4.30, something like that. Then you might have sort of six hours of action in that day. The rest of the time sort of standing around being on, on standby and having to be pretty clued in. When you are in action, you've got to have your head and shoulders above the turret because otherwise you can't see. There are periscopes, but they're next to useless. And you have to have 360-degree vision. You're also listening to your own crew on the crew intercom. You're listening to the B net, which is what's linking the rest of the squadron. You're also having to listen to the A net, which is what's linking you to the rest of the regiment and potentially the infantry. You've got to be watching the whole time because if you're not, you know, you might miss something and that could prove fatal. You've got to be concentrating the whole time. You've got to make snap decisions on which the lives of your men might depend. And it's physically and mentally utterly, utterly exhausting. And you might not be pulled out of the line till sort of 10 o'clock at night. Then you've got to kind of resupply with fuel and ammo and all the rest. You get to get something to eat. Then as a commander, you might then have to go off to an O group, which is an orders group, where you'd be sort of getting your kind of, you know, sit rep of what's been happening that day and what you're expected to do the following morning. So you might not get your head down till kind of after midnight and even then you know it's not like you've sort of got a nice comfy bed to go to it's kind of the pillow is the ground and you know your bed is the grass next to the tank so it's it's just brutal so you know after about six days of that where you're getting having to concentrate the whole time you're under extreme danger the whole time or a large part of that time and you're getting no more than kind of you know three hours sleep a night if you're lucky you're absolutely shot and, and of course this is accumulative then you get taken out of the line you have a few days out of the line but then you've got to go back again and it just goes and so it just goes on and on and on and on you know there's just there's just no let up at all i'm just totally in awe of how these people managed it's extraordinary that uh, detail that you have that the commanders you know it's the most dangerous job of all because you're sticking your head up all day long <laughs> yeah of something that's quite high you know, the infantry, in moments like, you know, you can hit the deck or you can hide behind a hedge or whatever. There's sort of limit to what you can do in a tank. And Sherman also has quite a sort of distinct profile, quite high profile as well. It's just unbelievably dangerous, which is why 52% of the officers, officer establishment, were killed. In terms of the dangers to them, I mean, we've got mines, we've got broken ground, we've got enemy tanks. It sounds like it was snipers and panzerfausts that were the things they were most scared of. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the sniper is because it's a long range shot and you can't see and, you know, 
you can't see them and it's you just never know when it's coming it's sort of slightly the same with the Panzerfaust. I mean, the Panzerfausts will get worse and worse as the, as the kind of war progresses because, of course, the Germans have got less more traditional ordnance. I mean, a man of a Panzerfaust is, is sort of semi doing a suicide mission. I mean, you know, because the very nature of Panzerfaust is you've got to get close for it to be effective. And to be close, obviously, you, you firing the Panzerfaust is going to be in a very, very dangerous situation. But these Panzerfaust sort of, you know, people jumping out of the side of woods and things and hedgerows and stuff goes on right to the very, very end of the war. And, and they're absolutely lethal. I mean, interestingly, most casualties actually occurred outside of the tank and from mortar shrapnel more than anything else. So what happens? You get hit, you have to bail out, you jump running out of the, of the tank and that's when you get hit. But there's just so many different ways to be maimed. And, you know, the one thing that is absolutely guaranteed is that, that at some point your tank will be hit. I mean, 100%. Even the people who got through it unscathed personally, like David Render or Stuart Hills, their tanks were hit multiple times. And whether they managed to get out unscathed, badly wounded, lightly wounded, completely carbonised and incinerated was really a, a matter of chance. Speaking of chance, well, the main section of the book opens with D-Day and the extraordinary amount of just sheer luck seems to have been involved in that in terms of the you know oh the weather they've all been blown off down the beach and we had these which i hadn't known swimming tanks yeah only some yeah, of which swam yeah well i mean the idea was to give the infantry that, that extra fire support right on the beach and it actually was a pretty good idea and, the, and for the most part i think the the dd tanks these duplex drive tanks work quite well but i mean if you think about it you know you've got a 30 ton tank and you've got a canvas screen around it which is waterproof you hope and it's got a sort of propeller shaft and a different drive shaft on it so that it can basically float and swim, in inverted commas. Well, you know, that's fine if it's a sort of, you know, the sea's like a mill pond. But the moment you've got a bit of a swell, you know, you can see how problems might arise because it doesn't seem natural that a 30-ton tank should swim anyway. And, of course, it's, you know, D-Day, the weather was absolutely terrible, but, but, but they're committed, they've got to go for it, they're prepared to take pretty heavy casualties. And so it's just, it's just bad luck. But, you know, swimming in these tanks... I mean, Sherwood Rangers lost 12 of these tanks just like that. I mean, they just sort of sunk like a stone. I mean, you know, I read about this chap called Bill Wharton. And, you know, he launched from his landing craft tank, which is sort of 50-metre-long, flat-bottomed landing craft, came out of it, and the tank just sank, just like that. You know, because he was on the top, he was able to escape. But three of his crew drowned before you've even started. I mean, it's absolutely horrendous. I mean, the amazing thing about D-Day, I think D-Day would have been a complete walkover, a total walkover. I mean, D-Day was very, very successful anyway. Don't let anyone suggest it wasn't. But I think it would have been a complete walkover had the weather been good. You cannot overemphasise just how debilitating it was with these sort of flat-sided, shallow-bottom craft being buffeted by a wind that is sort of blowing at them, blowing a hooli at kind of sort of 90 degrees to the way they're trying to go. Inevitably, they're all going to sort of veer off east. You know, it's absolutely inevitable. Yes, you've got all these aerial photographs of them being kind of... Well, they're amazing. I mean, God, I sort of... I can't believe it's taken me these long to discover this. This is, this is a, the National Collection of Aerial Photography. I think it's in Glasgow or Edinburgh. And it's just... They're just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, because you can see individual tanks on these photographs. And, you know, it's a moment frozen in time. So if you know the time when the photograph was taken, you can see exactly where everything was. And, and there's a huge amount of contention over exactly what happened on D-Day and what units landed where and at what time and all this sort of stuff. And these photographs really, really do help you resolve that. So that in alone was, in itself, was fascinating to look well, at. Well, that, that business of the contention of what happened on D-Day, you, you say quite eloquently, like, what felt to somebody like 
10 minutes may have actually been an hour and a half what you know right. that it's very right. hard to kind of reconcile all the data now i mean throughout this book you do a sort of day by day almost hour by hour this guy was here this guy was there this is what they said to each other There's sort of such rich detail how do you put that together and are you occasionally using a sort of novelist reimagining license because there's so much verbatim dialogue i'm like where's all that come from no, I'm not doing any novelist reimagining. You know, if I've read in a letter or a diary that somebody said, oh, and I said to Bert and he said this, then I will consider that as read. And, you know, and I'll, I'll consider that that's fair game. You know, if someone even says to me kind of 70 years after the event, well, I remember him and I went up to the colonel and the colonel said this and I said that. You know, I just think from a from a reading point of view, it's more effective to write it as speech rather than big chunk of quoted kind of oral history. But I think that's fair enough because... They've told me they, they were there and who am I to argue? And it all seems to kind of, you know, fit together. I mean, a lot of it is kind of just piecing together. There were certain, certain episodes that were just riddled with inconsistencies. The Giel battle in Belgium, for example, which happened on the 10th, 11th of September, was incredibly difficult to piece together because all the eyewitness accounts I had of it were all contradictory. So in that case, I had to take a kind of what I thought seemed the most likely scenario and go with that. I think I did put a note in the back to kind of to that effect, to sort of hold my hand up on that one. But, you know, basically, if there's only one kind of organisation of people's views that makes sense, then that's probably what happened, because that's the only one that makes sense. Otherwise, it, it just doesn't quite fit. How many of these guys are still alive? I mean, you said it was a few years ago that you were interviewing these veterans. Well, very sadly, Stan Perry was the last officer, and he died two weeks ago, tragically. I mean... I guess maybe not tragically because he was 98 and he'd had an incredibly good life. But, but you know, sad for all of us left behind. But there's, there's, I think there's three Sherwood Rangers left out of all those who served. I mean, you know, gosh, that generation is just slipping away so fast now. Yeah, well, you've caught, you've caught them here. Now, one aspect, on the sort of military aspect of it, you, there's this sort of doctrine that I think came from Monty that said, right, the way we're going to do warfare now is we're going to only take ground if we can hold it. You know, slow but sure, we will not retreat was that the right thing to do do you think yeah i think so actually it was then general alexander who came with that when he took over as commander-in-chief middle east in august 1942 he looked around he saw the eight i found front he went into cairo and he said right no more reverses we're not going to retreat anymore and that was something that montgomery when he took over as eighth army commander endorsed and then just became part of the kind of british way of war yeah i think it was absolutely the right idea the problem is, is if you stride on take something in a sort of massive balaclava charge and then you lose it again. Then you've got to retake it a second time. And that's just a kind of waste of everyone's time and blood and effort and all the rest of it. So it's much better to, you know, the, 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 the Allied way of war, which is Canadian and American and everyone else endorsed as well, was this idea that you, you build up overwhelming strength. You get to a point where, you know, you're taking risk, of course, but it's a calculated risk. And you make sure that once you take that ground, you hold it. And, and with very, very few exceptions, that continues to be the case. I mean... An obvious exception is the sort of relinquishing of Arnhem, for example, in Operation Market Garden in late September 1944. There are moments where bits of land are given up, not least in Normandy when they give up Hill 112 during Operation Epsom. But, I mean, you're talking about a few hundred yards worth of land, nothing significant. I think that kind of methodical, supply-heavy, operational-heavy way of war was absolutely the right way to do it because it did mean that the number of casualties was considerably less and those of the other combatant nations. It's just it's important to understand that that of those in the firing line, 
casualties were just as high as anywhere else. How effective were the German defences as they were sort of as it were on the run? Well, in Normandy to start off with, they were quite effective because they sort of held the Allies for the best part of you know seven, you know, six weeks. I'm not one of these people that kind of thinks the German military machine should be put on some sort of pedestal of tactical brilliance. You know, you have to remember they're, they're from a totalitarian state, whereas if you don't do what you're told, you're going to get shot. So that's quite a good factor in making sure that people stay in their trenches or their foxholes or continue to advance or whatever. I mean, the problem with the Germans is that, you know, they've got sprinkled through their units. They've got some very, very competent people and they've got some very experienced people and that goes an awful long way. They've also got some very, very good equipment very good weaponry, but they're underpowered, they haven't got enough mechanisation, they haven't got enough oil, they haven't got enough of anything. And so the outcome was absolutely inevitable. You know, what, what isn't inevitable is, is how long it's going to take and how many people are going to be dead and wounded and, you know, displaced by the end of it. That, that's the great uncertainty. And since we're running towards the end of our time, after all this fighting all the way through Europe, how did the war end for the Sherwood Rangers? Well, it ends up between Bremen and Hamburg in this sort of bit of... I should say, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no I, think, I, think, I think we can reveal this one. So they're involved in the capture of Bremen and then they're, they're moving into this sort of hinterland between Bremen and, and Hamburg, which is sort of largely flat but not unattractive countryside, sort of full of oaks and horse chestnuts and beaches and, and what have you. And they're getting ready to do an attack on Bremenhaven and suddenly a message reaches their headquarters, their regimental headquarters in a place called Karlshofen, which is this beautiful little village, sort of farming community, absolutely slap bang in the middle between Hamburg and Bremen. And regimental headquarters in a sort of collection of farm buildings, a sort of huge great yard. And uh, Stanley Christofferson receives a message on the evening of the 4th of May saying, you know, as of 8 o'clock tomorrow, Germans are surrendering and no more firing and don't advance and don't do anything and just stay put. And they all have this sort of immediate euphoria that they've sort of got through it, followed by incredibly mixed feelings of guilt that they've survived and others haven't and regret for those who've been lost and all the rest of it. And I think very quickly they all feel quite flat, actually. Though they do have, I mean, the sort of plunder's pretty good at that stage. There's a lovely description of them getting the, I guess, their German headquarters. Oh, yes, in Bremen, they get that bunker and they... Ernie Leopard captures loads of cigars and cigarettes, which actually funds him through the rest of his time in the army, which means he can save his pay and set himself up as an independent plasterer in South London when he gets back to Civvy Street. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't smoke himself, so he just flogs them all on the black market. It's very funny. But yeah, so there's some perks of the job, I guess, but not very many. What I love about the show Rangers is they're a bunch of eccentrics, really. You know, they, they all have... A, most of them had a sort of decent sense of humour, Stanley Christopherson particularly had a love of the ridiculous. And they were drawn from all walks of life. You know, they really were kind of sort of farriers and printers and solicitors and men from the City of London and landowners and just real all sorts, most of whom would never have been in a uniform had it not been for the coming of war and then the war itself. And yet, throughout all the kind of slaughter and brutality that they experienced... Their sense of humanity never goes, you know, whether it's the Christmas at Shinin where they kind of save all their sweets and chocolates and put on a Christmas show for the for the kids in the Dutch village where they're staying, or whether it's Stanley Christopherson noting his, his noticing his first snowdrop in February nineteen forty five, you know, on the far side of the ruined Cleve city of Cleve. You know, I, I sort of I just think they're remarkable men and how they kept going and their morale kept going and despite all this mayhem, I, I, I they just seem very real people to me. And I think particularly when you're kind of 
bringing back people to life, you know, you're using their letters and stuff that were written on that day that they're describing, in that moment, and you're putting flesh back onto the bones of these people. They feel like very, very real and identifiable people who one can empathise with and, and go a bit more than that. I think you can really get to know them and like them, and I think that makes that sort of understanding that experience of war that much more clear. James Holland, thanks very much. Thank you, Sam. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 